Welcome listeners to our brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have a special treat. Remember when we spoke to Lee Rubin a few episodes ago? So now we have a friend of Lee Rubin, <laughs> David Boyko, who is an author. And okay, okay, we'll talk about the book, but when I saw the book, I was like, I didn't even know this entire world existed. So first of all, David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure and an honor to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you. Well, we're glad to have you. And you just came out with, I think it's your first book. Yes. Called Valley Flyers. And, well, why don't you tell us what it's about? Okay, uh, Valley Flyers is a story about a group of uh, young teenage pilots, one in particular named Jay. Basically, their lives are consumed by flying remote-controlled model airplanes. And they all congregate at an actual miniature airfield, which is based on a local airfield near me named Apollo 11 Field. But anyway, this group of teenagers operate under the moniker of the Valley Flyers. And one of them, the protagonist, Jay, starts to realize this. A newcomer to the airfield is sort of suspicious and not everything he's saying adds up. And although he's full of bravado and hubris, there's some things that are leading Jay to believe that he may be involved in a spate of assassinations that have recently occurred using a drone or quadrocopter technology. How's that? You know, I don't know what every book in the entire world is, but I don't think I've seen a book about this yet. Well, that's why I wanted to do it. It feels like a world that's never really been explored. And it's a really fascinating, interesting world. Like I said, this airfield nearby, Apollo 11 Field, I mean, it's a great place. It literally looks like a miniature airport. They have paved runways. Different areas of the park are for drones. And then there's the largest tarmac, which is for large-scale or giant-scale aircraft and going down to... uh, aircraft that are two pounds and then there's the smaller runway which is for small-scale aircraft that are two pounds or less it's just a great world and some of the people that are there they're just so consumed by this hobby it's a very expensive hobby and so you will see as a result of that you'll see plenty of middle-aged mostly men i would say there are some women there too but you'll see you know a lot of people that have the money to put into purchasing these expensive aircraft they're not all expensive but some of the things that these guys fly with are pretty incredible and so anyway yeah i I just never really been treated and i just really wanted to explore that with the readers so just okay we'll get sidetracked for a second here but aside from being people who can spend the time or the money on this sort of hobby are a lot of them pilots or just flying enthusiasts or kind of a mix or what what does that some look of them like? are pilots i don't have the statistic of the percentage i would say some of them are uh, retired pilots that don't fly as much for whatever reason maybe health reasons or whatever so this offers the opportunity to still keep their chops up with their piloting skills some of them perhaps can't afford to fly uh, full-size planes on a regular basis and then of course there's young people which is what i really wanted to center the story around younger people that obviously haven't quite gotten to the point where they can fly a full-size airplane but this is a good training ground for that so does it translate that using whatever device you have to use to control these aircraft if you would then go into like a simulator is that very similar yes i would say it is similar you have your controls you have your stick and you you know there's just you have certain gauges your altimeter and you have to know sort of the basics of flight in order to really be successful in flying these planes. And so, yeah, there's I, I would say there's a lot of commonality, and I would bet for sure 
a lot of these pilots could easily jump on emulator and do pretty well. Wow. And then I saw also from some of the book descriptions that it seems like a lot of these planes are designed like actual, I don't want to say historic planes, or like actual planes that like once flew. Is that is that kind of the standard for it? Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of the fun of it is once you get good and you stop crashing the airplanes, which obviously is expensive, then you can really get into the artistry. You know, once you know how to really handle the aircraft and keep it off the ground, then you can start getting into exploring, yeah, some of this historic aircraft, jet aircraft, all kinds of things. Right now, a lot of the newer airplanes are, they're all going electric. This sort of figures into the story, and they use a technology called a lithium polymer battery or lipo battery which is a high storage battery for power thereby allowing you to fly the plane for ideally at least 10 minutes without needing to land and recharge but the the other thing about the lipo batteries and you may have heard stories in the news they're highly explosive so they really have to be treated with kid gloves in fact i had a neighbor down the street from me who was charging a lipo battery and left it unattended and his garage caught on fire oh well so i said i wanted to integrate that into the story because it's kind of interesting aspect to the technology what what were they using before that before that, it was a, a fuel, a jet airplane, a model airplane fuel. And they have these engines called glow plug engines, which are mostly propeller aircraft. But you actually, you know, you pour the fuel in, and that's how they run. So, consequently, those are kind of explosive, too. So, you know, <laughs> training <laughs> one kind of explosive for <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yeah, so this is a fun uh, hobby you were saying, right? It is. Once you get to a certain point where you're not crashing the airplane, because that's not so fun and it can be costly. That's why they start out with, they're called foamies. It's a, literally a, a sort of a styrofoam aircraft, and that's a really good learning aircraft because it's sort of indestructible. No, it's not completely indestructible, but a lot more forgiving. Okay. And then also that you said the new batteries give about 10 minutes of fly time. Is that a lot of flying time? Because it doesn't sound long. Yeah, that actually is a pretty good flight time. I mean, obviously, you know, you're not going to be able to... You're flying at an airfield and you're confined to a certain area and you're doing tricks. 10 minutes is not bad. If you're in a competition, you can certainly do your routine. You You have plenty of time left over. If you're in a race... It's plenty of time for that. The technology will only get better and better and probably already has in the last few months, but that's sort of a standard. Just looking at this all together, you're saying that, oh, you want to explore this world a little bit more, but why would you even think to write a book about it? Like, why was this... Okay, this is the answer instead of even coming out with like some sort of pictorial something or other, website or something. Well, in all honesty, I'm also a screenwriter, and so I actually thought, you know, this I've been a big fan of Spielberg-type adventure movies, you know, Goonies-type movies, and I thought to myself, wow, this would be a great movie, just a great arena world uh, setting for a movie, and so I actually tackled the story first as a film script, because I think it is very visual. Yeah. And so that script is done and was done a couple of years ago. It made some rounds around town and it didn't immediately spark any huge interest on behalf of the Hollywood producer crowd. But I just love the story and the setting. And I just thought, you know what? I just want to write this as a book and get it to readers. And so that's what I did. Was it hard coming off of screenwriting to write a novel where you're like, oh, great, I need way more words. <laughs> that's a good question. I had already written 
fair amount of prose. I went to UCLA and I was a minor in the creative writing program, mostly okay. doing short stories under an author named Brian Moore, who's a Canadian author who's written an interesting series of books about missionaries going to the outback in Canada and all the adventures they have. But anyway, so I had sort of already done that type of writing, but then I sort of segued away from it into screenwriting, and then I was coming back to it. It was sort of coming back to an old friend, although it is a different style of writing, and I did sort of have to, because in a screenplay, you're encouraged to use less word, not more, and your dialogue, you know, you're encouraged to be brief, to the point, laconic, and so that, I had to sort of retrain myself back to, you know what, I don't have to worry about a bit of dialogue being three or four lines that's okay I, I need to describe this area more I need to describe that object more and that's okay and I did go through sort of a, a little bit of a curve there as far as that goes and I had an editor that read the first draft and he said I can tell off the bat that your screen your prose is terse right so yes that's the long answer to your question yeah, even also you're talking about doing short stories, but even a short story to a novel is not the same thing. It's, it's, no, it's, it's much longer. It is, and so with this, it, it was nice because I had the outline of the story in the screenplay already, and so I kind of knew where it was going. Oh, yeah. And so that was very helpful. Yeah. My first novel was also written off of an idea for a screenplay. It's actually kind of common. The Ever After series? No, it's a Sapphire Legend. I never finished the screenplay of it because it was actually the opposite. I, I was looking for more words, so that that's when I switched over to writing the novels and I haven't stopped writing from there, so. Yeah, yeah. You know sort of the process then. Yeah. It's just interesting to hear. Is this something that everyone goes through or was this just me? Not just you. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Are you thinking now? I mean, you don't have to give too many details, but are you thinking now, hey, I kind of like this novel stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it or are you just like, I got it out with this story? I absolutely am wanting to do another one much sooner than later. I have an idea, actually, that's based on another screenplay of mine that, you know, another story that I've loved for a long time and I'm already sort of taking baby steps to turning that into a novel as well. That's definitely a way for the stories to get out there I guess. Yeah what I love about just this experience so far has been obviously it's self-published so I'm learning as I go but I just enjoy connecting with the readers and getting their Amazon reviews and it's it's really nice just direct contact with the readers and I just feel like there's no intermediary. It's like a direct contact with your reader, and I really love it. So you're saying, like, for screenplays, you feel like there's an intermediary because the screen in between or because the director's in between or the actors? Uh, both, yeah. First of all, you write the screenplay, and then you got to go to an agent, more likely, and they have something to say about it, and then before they want to take it to producers, then you have the producers who have to read it, right. and then if you're lucky enough to get it made, yeah, then obviously then there's the director involved, and then there's the interpretation of the actors, which is all well and good. It's just more of a collaborative medium, mm -hmm. whereas this, as a writer, it's, I find, more rewarding thanks to this self-publishing platform that Amazon has, and you're just able to go straight to your readers, and it's just, it motivates you. It just, it's motivating to hear from readers that have enjoyed the books. Yeah. Well, the flip side is that you could also hear directly from readers who trash the books. <laughs> right. That too. That too, and that's, you know, that's part of the deal. That's right. But I'm kind of used to criticism. Believe me, in, in the screenwriting world, you just get so much, there's just a lot of rejection. Yeah. And so you get kind of used to that and kind of take it with a grain of salt at a certain point. That's good.
that part of why you chose to do self-publishing instead of a traditional pub? Did you even try for traditional publishing or you just wanted to, you know, I'm well, just going to do it. I'll take charge of it and that's it. That's a good question. I did actually go out to some literary book agent. I could have gone out to some more. I got a little bit of feedback, not much. I got a little bit of feedback and then I realized, you know, this is like the same kind of process I'm running into that I was sort of looking to bypass with screenwriting was there's an intermediary there, which is all, again, well and good. Right. It's a necessary thing. But in the terms of this story, at a certain point, I was ready to just get it out. I did go through, I used the Reedsea, Reedsea.com uh, website, and I found a, a great editor, worked with him on it, and another company called Good Story, I went through around uh, with them, reading it. And after that, I was encouraged enough to just take the plunge. I just didn't want to wait. I guess I was just a little impatient at this point. Well, yeah, everything is just, it takes a long time. Yeah, no, we'll see, you know, on the next round, maybe I'll give that a shot again. Right. I guess you always have this as your option B or option C in case (laughs) you get impatient again. Which is nice to have that fallback plan. Yeah. And would you also say, because that you went to people to work with editors, is that something that you were just like, oh, let's try this out? You're like, no, I knew I had to go to an editor. I need to get another set of eyes on it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely knew I had to get another set of eyes on it. I think that's a really important process of writing. At a certain point, you sort of lose a certain amount of objectivity. So getting another set of eyeballs, especially an experienced set of eyeballs that know what the market is looking for is extremely helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And then... Yeah. This story that you chose to write it with teens, young adult officially. So why did you choose that, the young adult, instead of going, well, any other age? That's a good question. I sort of fell into the young adult category. I mean, at first I was sort of leaning toward just straight contemporary thriller. But I think I actually heard on your podcast, somebody mentioned upper YA. Is that the term? Yeah, they can use that for an older, more mature YA. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the readers that I had read it said, well, this is why it doesn't tick all the boxes. I know there's a lot of YA that gets into sort of internal issues more than this book. I mean, this book, I would say, is more straight action adventure. It's just uh, several people sort of mentioned, well, you know, this is YA. I mean, it's may not tick all the boxes. I just decided to use that as the genre. Yeah. Sometimes people will just look at only, oh, what's the age of protagonist? Okay, that's YA. Or like, does it always center around that? Okay, that's YA. Which I know is not always the case. I mean, yeah, there are certain boxes to tick in YA that this story probably doesn't tick. Uh, It just seemed to fit best into that category because is it about sort of older teenagers that are coming of age? Yeah, it felt like YA to me. Like, it did not feel like YA to me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. A lot of YA is still read by adults, but it doesn't mean it's not also YA. So, Absolutely. Yeah. How did you decide? Because there's so many kinds of planes in here. It's almost like, were there so many more that you didn't write about? Or how did you even approach the plane part of it? <laughs> That's a funny thing. <laughs> I love old planes. And I just wanted to include a lot of them. You do see a lot of different models at the airfield. And that was sort of fun. I, I hope that it didn't draw you out of the story too much. <laughs> well, that would lend to the visual medium, right? Because if I would just see the picture of it, if it would be on screen, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's what that is. Yes, yeah. and you probably didn't know what some of those planes look like. I get that. Yeah, that's sort of a geeky pilot, historical plane aficionado thing. It's part of introducing the readers to this world because I'm like, I had no idea. <laughs> for me, flying yeah. objects are just planes and drones. I'm like, that's the entire category for me. You know? so, <laughs> that's good that you know that difference. I mean, yeah. Oh, okay, good. I got one thing. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's yeah. right. You're yeah. one step closer to piloting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So I was also wondering, because you said that this is more of an expensive hobby, and then it seems like the kids you focus on are all coming from different kinds of backgrounds, but we don't always see them with only the same kind of plane or drone. So the ones that they own personally, but then where are the other ones coming from? Personally, uh, drones are actually not that expensive. You can get a a pretty decent drone for uh, a couple hundred bucks. When I say super expensive, I'm talking about the giant scale planes, this planes with a six foot wingspan, the jet engines, those can run $10,000. Whoa. What's that? Six foot wingspan? Yes. That's massive. Yes. It's incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some of these planes are amazing. Yeah. I mean, I just envision these kids either saved up some money from birthdays or allowance or whatever and purchase them. You can get a decent remote controlled uh, plane for a few hundred bucks as well. Again, the older guys are going to be flying the bigger stuff and the more jets and things like that. Because these jets, you know, they can fly 200 miles an hour. It could be, you know, in the wrong hands, sort of a weapon. Kent, you know, the guy that runs the airfield, I think he loans out planes to these kids as well, because he has a whole fleet of them himself. And so they just come into contact with different aircraft. And this is a total, total side question. Yeah. These airfields, do people just have memberships to go to them? Is it kind of like a country club, like a golf club? Or like how does... Like, where are they getting their money from? Okay, here's the deal, and this is a little bit of inside baseball. I envision this park as the, the airfield as the property of Kent. In reality, for instance, the miniature airfield near me is actually owned by the uh, city of Los Angeles. It's part of the city parks. Oh. So you can go and fly there for free. Okay, here's the other sort of inside baseball is that there is a group of pilots called the Valley Flyers. They spell themselves differently. It's F-L-Y-E-R-S than the way I spell it in the book. They're not teenagers per se, but they are an organized group of pilots that operate out of that airfield. And so they sort of inspired this as well. And again, I took some creative license and changed the details of reality and created this private park but yeah you can go fly at these actual places for free obviously if you're going to be in the club i'm sure there's some kind of dues and i don't know there are probably are some private airfields in the u.s these places are all over the united states there are some that charge but the one near me does not and again that's because it's owned by the park system that's so interesting did you tell them that they inspired your Valley Flyers? Did you tell that group that, they, that they're that they kind of there but not? <laughs> I have not actually made contact with them yet directly as that organization, but I want to. Because I think it'd be a fun thing for them to read, and I think it paints them in a very good light. Yeah, and they'd definitely be able to better picture some of the plays you talk about. Yes, absolutely, yes. Okay, two specific points I have to make about the book. Number one, okay, now I'm forgetting his name. I think it starts with a D. There's the kid who gets the car that looks like an old mail truck or something like that. It's one of Jay's friends. Derry, D-A-R-I. Yeah, is he the one who gets the car that looks like the mail truck? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, the mail truck car is hilarious. So just putting that out there. But here's the other thing. So for Jay, as the protagonist, he's going to be the one who's going to be suspicious. He's going to be the one, all these kinds of stuff, right? Because that's what's driving the plot and all the the story technical stuff. But you also talk about him being someone who believes in conspiracy theories and UFOs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And some of the way he talks about stuff, I think there would be a point also that I'd just be like, Jay, stop talking. Jay, you're crazy. Yeah, I don't know. There are sometimes it seems like his friends maybe shut him down a little bit too quickly. But if I was friends with a guy who every single time there was like a pattern and the grass thought it was like a crop circle. Okay, I'm I'm exaggerating, but I also would be like, you're nuts. There is a part of that where, sure, Jay got it right this time, but you know, next time he's gonna be like, remember the one time I got it right? And you'll be like, no, you're one for 375 right now. Yeah. (laughs) 
but I don't know where to go with that. But I'm just saying, like, I did have that as I was reading it to think that just because you got it right this time, Jay, did, like, don't get too confident. Like, you're probably going to get it wrong the next time. Yeah, that's a good point. That's probably what they'd be saying to him after this. It's a very valid point. You're right. I mean, if I have friends that sort of went on and on about some of this stuff. And at a certain point, you're like, you know what? Let's talk about something else. I don't want to hear it. And I think that's probably the case here as well with Jay. He knows sort of bounds and limits how far he can push stuff. Although in this case, he's highly motivated. One thing that I felt like had been sort of instrumental for Jay in this case was this was actual fact, I believe, prior to the 9-11 attacks. There was a group of the hijackers that trained at a small airfield in Florida. Right. And so I think Jay kind of remembers that and thinks that's happening here. That's kind of where he's coming from with that. Okay. And then did you have to look up a lot of drone rules and stuff like that? Or how much liberty yeah. did you take with that? Oh, yeah, yes, you I did. did. Yes. <laughs> and there all, are all kind of rules. The airfield near here has, has very strict rules. In fact, what's going on now is because of the fact that drones are becoming more and more common, the FAA is getting more involved because you do have these instances where a drone getting near an actual helicopter or an actual aircraft can be very dangerous. Right. You know, it's like you try and fly a drone anywhere near LAX, you're going to get in some serious trouble and probably go to jail. So there are all kinds of rules in terms of your altitude, how high you can go at this particular airfield, because they're not too far from Van Nuys Airport. So, yeah, they don't want any close calls with actual planes. But anyway, yeah, the FAA, they're starting to really want to get involved, and you need to register your aircraft now so they know who you are. They want, Especially if you're flying a drone, not so much the lowest-end consumer drones, but anything sort of higher-end they want to know about the um, GPS and, and all that stuff so that they can actually shut down your drone with what's called a geofence and so that your drone will just drop if it hits one of these geofences if you're going into a, an area like an airport or someplace where the drone should not be. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, because you also have in residential areas. Or... Okay, that's also a great moment. I don't know if I should say it though. Cassie, where she takes out the shotgun, that's... <laughs> It's such a perfect moment. We're just like, uh, good job. Thanks. Yeah, I thought that was a fun scene. He's a little bit over the top because, well, maybe it isn't. I don't know. A girl hanging out in the backyard just has the shotgun just sitting right there. It's just, uh... She's from Texas and that's where she's relocated from. Yeah, right. She's a really big believer in privacy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed that scene. Okay. Yeah. Just to keep us within our usual uh, time issue, even though yeah. like, we're not usually so good with that, but we'll try it this time. <laughs> so okay. we always wrap up with a fill in the blank of, I love it when writer to editor stories, uh, whatever you want to use, plots, this, that, booksellers, publishers, whatever, covers, yeah. do this. And I really don't like it when they do this. So how would you fill in the blank for that? I really like it when an author forces you to turn the page. Oh, yeah. I don't like it when when they tell you exactly what the character is thinking. Huh. That's a little screenwriter in me talking, I guess. You're taught in screenwriting, you know, avoid on-the-nose dialogue where the character is telling you exactly what's on their mind. You know, you want to have illusion, you know, you want to have misdirects or whatever. Right. Yeah, very good. Oh, okay, well, just ask quickly, what kind of books do you read these days? Is it like the action-adventure type stuff or kind of yeah. all over in your reading? Yeah. And people like Leech child and the jack reacher series i like a little bit of science fiction here and there i just read a really good book it was about an author i like books about writers <laughs> really it's about a writer 
He's had one book uh, published and it's received critical acclaim and then he sort of lost his mojo and now he's a writing teacher at a writing seminar and he meets this guy who's going to the seminar and he has this great story. Anyway, long story short, this guy from his writing seminar drops dead. So the writer says, you know, I really need, that was a great plot. I think it's actually called The Plot. Oh, that's Um, funny. So he's like, well, this guy's dead. I'm just going to use his plot. So he goes on and writes this book based on this guy's, this dead guy's plot and uh, all this stuff that ensues. Eventually, so it it comes out and becomes a huge success. But then things start happening where this writer that stole the plot starts to realize that there's more to this dead guy's life than he thought. So it's actually a good story. But that's, I guess, more of a thriller. Yeah. So it does seem, yeah, more than that. That's fine that you said that you like stories about writers. Is it just because... How about you? I think mean, I don't know. It's not specifically. It's sometimes I'm just like, oh, come on, get over yourselves, people. Stop writing about ourselves. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, it's not all stories about writers, but ones that are just sort of put a writer in sort of a unique situation that they wouldn't be in otherwise. I don't know. That's good. I mean, like, obviously, there's stories for all kinds of people. That's the point, right? Exactly. For example, Valley Flyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to wrap up with a nice plug at the end. Thank you so much. It's been quite a pleasure. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author David Boydo. To find out more about David and his work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word Podcast and all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word Podcast. Subscribe to Oh My Word Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And check us out at el10bound.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.